Good morning. I want to ask you to take out your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, it's in the back fourth of the Bible. And uh, if you brought your Bible, you can turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can still turn there. It's on page 789 of the Black Bibles that we have hopefully nearby you in the seat rack. Page 789, Romans 12. And uh, while you're turning there, if you haven't been with us, or even if you have, we've been in this series called Family Values that we're going to cover in the, next, uh, the first couple months of the year. And by family values, we mean our church family values. Uh, the first week, we looked at our family values, the Bible. Last week, we saw that our family values uh, being God's stewards, living as God's stewards. And uh, this week, we're going to look at how our church family values right relationships. We're going to come back to Romans 12 in just a little bit to learn more about that. But um, if you're following along in the notes, uh, one of the things that I appreciate uh, about doing these kind of messages is that they focus in on some things that are very important to all of life. And if you're following along, relationships are the place we learn to be like Jesus. Relationships, believe it or not, are the place we learn to be like Jesus. And in my notes, I also wrote the word, are the school we learn to be like Jesus. It's where we can take classes, and they're hard classes sometimes. And other times they're, they're great. But they are some of the most important things in our life. Now, why are we doing a series on our values? We talked about this uh, the first week and last week as well, but if you look up here, here's a definition. By naming our values... When we name our values, oops, can we do the other one? Sorry about that, I didn't make that clear. By naming our values, okay, we can live them more intentionally. We may not have that one, do we? There we go. Can we read this together? By naming our values, we can live them more intentionally. Now, this is true for you as an individual. This is true for you as a family at home. This is true for us as a church family. And uh, once people know what you're aiming at, people can move towards it. It kind of provides a vision. It kind of provides that opportunity. So, uh, again, what I, what I want to mention is something I mentioned the first week. What gets celebrated gets repeated. Whatever gets celebrated gets repeated. And so when we celebrate right relationships, the possibility of us moving towards those goes up. So we want to talk about that. Now, what I want to share with you, though, is that it's somewhat ironic that I'm teaching this message, at least after this past week. You guys ever have one of those weeks where you say, this is going to be our value, and then you spend a whole week saying, I think I contradicted a lot. You know, there was just ways that I saw. But what I loved about this is it kept calling me back. Even when I fall short, it kept calling me back to, hey, that's what I want to be important. That's what I want to celebrate in my life. And uh, again, in terms of our church, this is a value that goes back in our church's history. I don't know if you know this, but our church family is 111 years old. Do you feel old? We're, we're, we have been around for a while here in Springfield since 1904. But I didn't get to know Cherry Hills until about 1982. And in 1982, uh, my wife and I had just gotten married. Trish and I uh, happened to visit at the old church building on Outer Park Drive, when my dad was actually preaching the first message he'd ever preached at Cherry Hills in order to be, he was candidating, he was being voted by the church whether or not they were going to call him. And I'll never forget, I walked into the building 
in the worship center, I've shared this with many of you before, but there was no one sitting in front of the halfway mark of the church building, of the worship center. That tells a lot, doesn't it? And what I discovered later, my dad helped me understand, is that the church had gone through kind of a split, kind of a painful, painful time where people got sideways with each other and it just cooled everything off. And so people were guarded. People had pulled back. And so during the process of of calling my dad to that church, he had conversations and he said, "Uh, look, I know you guys are going through a hard time. If I did come to be your pastor, what would you want me to do? Now, I don't know who said this, but whoever said it was very prophetic. They said, would you please come and teach us and help us learn to love each other again? My dad had a certain amount of hesitation to come to Cherry Hills at that time uh, from the suburbs because to go into a situation where people are separated like that is a hard call. But as soon as he heard that person say that, all hesitation left him because God had been teaching him and he knew that God wanted him to teach others that the most important thing a church can do is love the Lord and love one another. And he was excited about the possibility of a church being healed and a church coming back to that place. Now, I don't think he had any idea all that God was going to do but he was interested in being part of it. And I've often joked with people that I'm so glad that he did come to Cherry Hills and began to learn with the people of Cherry Hills how to love each other again. And uh, my job, hopefully, is just not to mess it up. But you know, there's something about our church family that has this history. Now let me tell you a little bit more about what happened once he got to Cherry Hills. As he sought to learn from God how he might teach other people, he began to do some messages, especially on communion Sundays, the first Sunday of the month, on specific ways that we can practice loving one another. And then later, a few years later, he actually began to do a series of messages in Romans 12, what we're going to look at in just a little bit. And I went back in the archives and looked at some of the message titles from Romans 12, and it just, it just gave me encouragement to see where we've been as a church family as we've been trying to learn this. But out of all that, a man in our church one day said that he was, as listening to those messages, he felt like if he was to capsulize what God was trying to say through the preaching, it was this sentence, and it was the one we just saw earlier. So now we can look at it. Would you mind reading this with me? Learning to be the loving and inviting family of God. Now this is, this is a sentence that a number of us that go back a ways with Cherry Hills were used to saying in the past. What I love about this sentence is it starts with the word learning. Relationships are never anything we master. Oh, we might think we do, but aren't they a constant learning process? Isn't it a constant school? Isn't it some of the most challenging things we do? Is it not the source of some of the greatest joy and the source of some of the greatest pain? Is it not difficult when you and I have relationships where there's still loose ends or there's a lack of closure or something's gone south? Is that not some of the most challenging things in the world? And yet, one of the things that my dad helped me understand and has helped many of us understand is that if you want to understand the Bible in a big picture way, yes, it has commands. Yes, it has propositional truths. But if you reduce the Bible to that, you've ripped the guts out of the Bible. The Bible is primarily about relationships. 
It's about a relationship with God and relationships with people. The Bible helps us understand that all of us have a wrong relationship with God by nature. All of us have gone our own way. All of us have rebelled or been disinterested or apathetic, but all of us have been self-centered rather than God-centered. All of us. But the Bible says is that God, such a relational God that he is, was not content to leave that broken relationship without moving towards us. Therefore, even before we were interested in him, the Bible says he sent his one and only son to come to earth, not only to teach us how to live a better way, but to die in our place and die the death we should have died so that we could live the life we could have lived. If we could live. And that is a powerful thing. And so what I want you to see is, is that it's out of that relationship with God that every other relationship can be different. And that's what he wants us to understand. And so as we look at this this morning, we're going to look at Romans 12. And the two big ideas I hope you walk to your car with today are, am I a person that's learning to build loving relationships? And when I find myself with broken or bruised relationships, am I learning to repair them or at least attempt to repair them? Am I moving in that direction? Now, here's, here's the big idea. Some of us may wonder why this is important. Friends, over the years, I've met people that are content to let relationship after relationship after relationship go right into the relational graveyard. I've watched people blow up relationships repeatedly and not even phase them. But one of the things we need to understand is that our relationships are a direct indication of our character. The way you and I relate to people tells everything about us. And not only that, but here's what my dad helped me understand that was so envisioning. He says, look, here's why right relationships matter. When a church is practicing right relationships and trying to repair broken relationships, the grace of God is flowing in that church. But when people do not do that, when they just let relationships keep going in the relational graveyard, you can tell the grace of God just leaves that church by comparison. Not only that, but it tells us that the devil gets a foothold when people don't take care. It also says that our prayers are hindered. I was rereading this week as I was thinking about my marriage, but the way I treat my wife, I need to treat her gently so that nothing hinders my prayers. See, friends, relationships are the ball game. It's what life is all about. And yes, it's the hardest work we'll ever do. And yet God wants to shape our characters through it all both the painful ones as well as the good ones. So I want to just pray, and then we're going to look at Romans 12 and see what we can learn in a practical way. Lord, right now, I do understand that there's a battle going on. The evil one would love to divide our church and divide our families and separate us from you, but your vision is to reconcile. Your vision is to unite us. Your vision is to make us one with you first so that we can love each other differently. Now, Lord, in these next few moments, would you use this service somehow to keep us moving in that direction with you? Help us to keep learning to be the loving and inviting family of God that you dreamed of when you were dying on the cross to purchase us. In your name we pray, amen. So let's look at Romans 12, and let's, uh, before we do that, by the way, is it okay if we read the value? I've talked a lot about it. It might be a good idea to actually read it. Let's do it. It's in that first box.
We value right relationships because God took the costly initiative to make us right with him and because wrong relationships block his Holy Spirit. We seek to be right with others, build a sense of family, and to be a caring community. So let's talk about building loving relationships. And first, let's get the context. Romans 12. Some of you know that the New Testament is written this way. The first section of the, of the letter in the New Testament, typically, is about what God has done and how that changes everything. And then usually the last part, or the last half, has to do with how does that play out in our everyday lives? How does it practically impact what we think and do? So let's look at Romans 12, because Romans 11, 1 through 11, has been telling what God has done for us in Christ by his mercy. Now let's look at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of the mercy he's shown to you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, he's saying, don't just offer your thoughts to God, your good wishes. Offer yourself completely all the way, even your body. Give yourself completely to him. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your what, friends? Your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, now notice how it affects our thinking, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, since you needed God's mercy just like everyone else, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. He's not saying think crummy of yourself, but don't overrate yourself in light of the fact you needed the mercy of God too. Verse 4, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so now those of us who have trusted in Christ, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to what, friends? All the others. Now, what he's saying is, if you're following along in the notes, Jesus makes us right with God, changing how we think. Jesus makes us right with God, changing how we think. And in my notes, changing how we love. When a person comes to the cross and trusts in Christ, they become right with God. They're made right with God. God reconciles with us. That's what he's offered. And so, now it changes the way we think. It changes the way we look at people in love. And that's what we want to learn about. So verses 6 through 8, we're actually going to come back to verses like that in four weeks when we talk about we value every person serving. It shows that when we come to Christ, he gives us spiritual gifts that can build up the body of Christ. But let's jump down to verse 9. Read along with me if you would and be ready to read verse 10 in the gray box. Love must be sincere. In other words, he's saying... In the church, don't, don't put on this phony kind of love. Learn how to love from the heart. And it doesn't mean wait till you feel like it. It means choose by an act of your will in action to show love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now would you read verse 10 with me? Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Can I just pause for a second? If one of you or me, we walk out of here and we decide, you know what? 
it doesn't really matter whether or not I pursue a growing relationship with Christ. It won't affect anything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if even one person in our church family decides to say, I'm going to cruise, that it won't affect our church? It will. And he's saying, make sure that you're one of those people in the body of Christ that keeps growing even when it's hard. Verse uh, 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now jump down to verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Here's how we can do it. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now let's look at the three building blocks that are listed here of building loving relationships. You can practice these at home. You can practice these here. But when you decide to practice these kinds of things, you'll be moving in the direction that God wanted you to move when it comes to growing in this area. So first, generosity. Share with those in need and practice hospitality. Generosity. Where do we see that? We see that there in verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. You know, in the early church, one of the things that happened that so radically affected pagan people around them that didn't believe in God is they saw that God had somehow gotten into these people and changed the way they thought. So look at Acts 4, 32 through 35. Look what it says. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. Remember last week we learned that as a steward of God, Everything belongs to God. When we understand that, it changes how we can share now. We don't have to hold it so tightly. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy person among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now, you know, for about 20-some years now, During Communion Sunday, which we practice the first Sunday of every month, we take a second offering. The reason we started doing that is because we saw in Galatians 6 that it says, do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. In other words, make sure you're not a church family that's just caring about everybody, but not caring about your own family. Make sure you do that too. Do both. And so we've taken that offering. It's a benevolence fund. Many of you have given to that. And maybe you'll find yourself giving it to him more in the future. Here's what we've learned. This last year, 2014, this church family gave over $100,000 to that. And the benevolence team was able to distribute that to people. Not to take away all their problems, but to at least give them an encouragement that they're not alone. And I, for one, believe that when they open those envelopes or they get those gifts, the love of Christ is loaded in that. It's such a manifestation of generosity of God flowing through his people. And when you and I look around and try and share with those in need in our church family, we may do it anonymously. We may do it in different ways. It might be a cup of cold water. It might be the smallest thing. But when we do it, it's not the amount as much as the heart and the generosity. And practicing hospitality is also means that we're willing to open our lives and our homes to each other, yes, but it also means that we care about guests and strangers that may walk through those doors for the first time. 
before the 8 o'clock service, I met someone back there in the corner who had just started coming to Cherry Hills. And I tried to imagine, what's it like to walk through these doors when you're not sure what's going to happen? Like, what if those people are weird? (laughs) But what if those people have the love of Christ in their heart, who even if they're shy, go, I'll reach out my hand, I'll say hello, I'll welcome them. I don't know if it'll make the difference, but I'll at least make an attempt. Man, when that happens, friends, people can tell from a mile away that God's gotten a hold of some people. The second building block is empathy. Empathy. And that is found in verse 15, a verse we often quote in our church family, that we need to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn or weep with those who mourn or weep. And this means entering into things with people. It means care by sharing in joys and sorrows. Empathy, care by sharing in joys or sorrows. You don't live very long before you find that in any given year, my dad used to say it this way, he says, if you'll just start building friendships with people, what you're going to discover is that any church family, excuse me, any church family, what can happen is that almost every person or family goes through a crisis every three years. That means that we're going to go through some things together if we do this together, friends. And that's why life groups are so important. This past week, I heard about how a man in our church lost his dad, who he loved very dearly. He's going to miss him a lot. And his life group banded together and decided that they would go. Some of them could only go to the visitation over in Jacksonville the night before. But they made that drive, and they stood in line. They stood with that guy. And the next day, the other half of the life group drove over for the funeral, those that were able to get off work. I bet that guy never forgets that the rest of his life because they shared in the sorrow. A little trickier for some of us is sharing in the joys of people because sometimes envy can get a hold of us. But what would happen if our hearts grew larger so that we could actually be happy for people when they were happy and joyful and we could celebrate and say, I'm so glad that happened to you. Wow, and I've seen that happen in our church. And to the extent that we practice that, we experience the fellowship of Jesus in those times with each other. We share life. The third thing is the building block that we see of building loving relationships is humility. Humility. And I like how the message paraphrase, paraphrases Romans 12, 16, which says, do not be proud. You know, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Isn't that interesting? Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. It's like if you didn't hear it the first time, let me repeat it another time. But it's also saying is don't be snobby. Don't think you're hot stuff. Literally remember, you needed the mercy of God as much as any other person. And now that Jesus is coming in our lives, we don't, we don't want to be controlled by the world's measurements, do we? We don't want to say, oh, they're important. They're not important. Oh, I like them. I don't like them. We won't want to be like that anymore. We don't want to show partiality. Even if we find ourselves moving that way, we want to see Christ correct that. And so I like how the message paraphrase says it. It says, enjoy the company of nobodies. Enjoy the company of nobodies or ordinary people or as what Jesus called the least of these. And when you and I begin to do that, Oh my goodness, it's a powerful thing when we worship 
shoulder to shoulder, side by side, and no longer think of ourselves by the world's status measurements, we begin to see people that just like me needed the mercy of God. Friends, you and I have never locked eyes with someone that does not matter to God. We have never stood next to a human being that was not precious in his sight. But we all get contaminated with this measuring ourselves thing and comparing ourselves, and Jesus can change that. And he does, and he has, and he wants to keep doing that. So when a church family does this, you know, it's a powerful thing. Let me just say this. We haven't talked about these for a while, but we have these in the seat pockets. That If you ever want to use one, it's just a little slip of paper, a cream slip of paper. We call them encouragement notes. And one of the things that my dad talked about was, hey, sometimes just one sentence from somebody can put them back on their feet. Let me just pause and say, every once in a while, I don't know who you are, but every once in a while, someone decides to write a discouraging note on these. Can we just all agree not to do that anymore, if uh, that happens? But just use these for encouragement notes. But you know what? When you put this, I know some of you have these in your Bible because someone gave you one. And you may want to take this. You know, these will be available every Sunday. If, you want, if you're sitting here and saying, how can I practice loving somebody this week? Who do you, God, who do you want me to encourage? Who do you want me to build into or build up? You could take one of these out and give it to them. Put it in the mail. Hand it to them afterwards. That's a powerful thing to do. So those are some building blocks of building loving relationships. But Romans 12 says that if you really value right relationships, then when you get broken or bruised relationships, you won't just let those go in the relational graveyard anymore. Now you'll begin to look at those differently and understand that the way you relate to people are character moments. They're moments that God can actually build us and work in our lives. So let's look at what Romans 12 says about that as well as we learn to live out of this mercy God's given us. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Wow. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now would you read verse 18 with me in that gray box, that second line? If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You mind if we read that twice? Would that be okay? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I'll go on. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, now he quotes from the book of Isaiah, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, excuse me, the book of Proverbs, I apologize. In doing so, he will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let's say that God prompts us to at least attempt to repair a broken relationship or a bruised relationship. What do we do? What are some of the building blocks of that? Well, notice these three. First, verse 14, bless, if you're following along, bless and do not curse those who mistreat you. Bless and do not curse those who mistreat you. Do we have any examples of this in the Bible? Do you remember when Jesus was getting nailed to the cross? 
Do you remember what he said to those people, to God, about those people that were doing that? Father, forgive them. In other words, don't hold them accountable for this sin because they don't know what they're doing. Wow. He blessed them instead of cursed them. What a different approach. And if he now lives in you and lives in me, he can help us bless instead of curse. We have new power to live with a different attitude and approach. And we see in the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts 7, as they're throwing rocks at him to kill him, which in fact they did, that before he died, he said, Lord, do not hold this to their account. Don't hold this against them. Release them from the penalty of what they're doing. Wow. You ever wonder why the Apostle Paul, years later, became a Christian? I believe that one of the things God used in the Apostle Paul's life as he was standing there, still named Saul, watching them throw rocks as he heard Stephen's words, and they echoed in his heart for days. He blessed instead of cursed me. Where does that come from? There's only one explanation. Jesus must not still be dead. He must be very much alive in that man. Wow. Wow. Bless and do not curse. Second, refrain. Don't repay or retaliate, but do good to them. You notice that, how it says that in verses 17 and following. It says, don't repay. Don't, you know, other places, it says, don't return insult for insult. I mean, does anybody else recognize how I've done that? I've powered up with people. I say, oh, is that how you're going to treat me? Okay, I'll give you some back. But what if instead I went, you know what? That's going to only make things worse. That's meeting evil with evil. I need to overcome evil with good. And it's my pattern to fall into over trying, being foolish enough to think that evil will overcome evil. Never. It'll only make evil worse. So Jesus, again, is our not only example, but he now lives in us, and he says, look. And so some people over the years have said, well, like, what about those words when he says, you know, turn the other cheek and all that kind of stuff? What's that about? Is he saying, you know, just let them pound you? That's not what he's saying. In that culture, it was, uh, he's talking about something that everybody in that culture knew was an insult. See, if someone slaps you on the cheek, and usually they would use their right hand, their best hand, it would hit your left cheek. But the picture here that he's giving is if someone hits you on the other cheek, in other words, if they backhand you, then now, which was a double insult in the Hebrew culture there, he's saying, look, turn the other cheek, not so they can keep pounding you, but give them a chance to change their mind, and also don't hit them back. He's trying to say don't return vengeance. But when he says turn the other cheek... By that time, what he's saying is, he's saying, don't, don't engage in the same kind of behavior. And he doesn't say, keep letting them hit you. He's just saying, look, give them an opportunity to see your humble response instead. Now, the idea here is, in number three, is go. Make the first move to apologize and forgive. This is the scariest stuff I'm going to talk to you about today. So buckle your seatbelt. This stuff is where the hard stuff, this is where it all gets down to, friends. If I, out to the right, I've listed Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. 
In the first case, here's what Matthew 5 says, if you're looking up here. It says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and go, first go and be reconciled to them, and then come off your gift. It means, if you're in a church service, and God shows you that there's something, somebody has something against you because of something you've done, it comes across the ticker of your mind. Don't keep worshiping like everything's jazzy with God and doesn't need anything to happen. In other words, before you keep practicing week in, week out of worshiping him, go and make that right. Go and attempt, go and do everything in your power to at least be humble and make that right, and then come and worship God. Don't act like that isn't a blockage in the pipe between you and God. Wow, but notice Matthew 18. Matthew 18 says that if a, you know, you have something against a brother or a brother sins, you need to go. Wow. And in both cases, he says make the first move. So go make the first move to apologize or forgive. In other words, keep short accounts. Don't keep letting that stay in avoidance mode. Now I want to talk to you about a picture that's helped me. Um, what this means... Maybe this picture will help you. Is that when you and I find ourselves at odds with somebody, can you all see over here? When you find ourselves at odds with somebody, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's painful. Sometimes it's frustrating. And when we find ourselves at odds, we have to make up our mind whether or not in order to be rightly related, we're willing to go through this thing someone once called the tunnel of chaos. Sometimes other people would call it the zone of the unknown. Right? Because we don't have any idea. Like, what happens if they slam dunk us? What happens if they reject or they, you know, rebuff what we say? Or what happens if they're not ready to forgive? Or what happens if, you know, what, what if, what if, what if, and our minds fill with but, 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 but. With God, anybody ever experienced that before? How the excuses start mounting when God says, I want you to go. But he says, look, I'll help you. I want you to learn how to relate rightly to people, even if they're not willing to relate rightly back. Or I want you to learn how to relate rightly if you haven't related rightly the first time. I want to help you get better at this. So this is some of what we're talking about. And so on the back of the message notes, if you turn those over, I put... A whole bunch of stuff. And my wife reminded me this morning, and I'll just say it, you're probably thinking it is, that's overwhelming to look at all this. So I'll let you look at it another time. But let me say a couple sentences in there that I, that I would just mention to you. I want you to see that what God's ultimately trying to get us to when he's talking about right relationships is mercy. Remember how we started talking about by the mercies of God? I urge you to offer yourself. What Jesus once said is he said to people that had become self-righteous, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He told a parable called the unmerciful servant where this guy owned 
like the national debt of debt, but the king forgave him. And then he went out and started choking somebody that only owed him a few bucks. And there's this incredible sentence in that parable. Should you have not had mercy on him just as I had mercy on you? And so what Jesus is looking for are people that walk humbly with God. Remember Micah 6, 8, he has shown you what is good to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what he's looking for. He wants to work in us. And so a lot of times when I'm frustrated or resentful or ticked off or hurt with somebody, what goes out the window is mercy. I forget how much mercy he had to show to me. I forget how much mercy that person needs just like me, and I don't want them to get it. And what God's saying is, no, 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 no. Let me show you how to receive mercy and share it with other people in a way that can be life-giving rather than death-dealing. And so there's that sentence there, the third bullet point, is that in my hurt or anger, am I willing to admit there's probably more to this person and situation that I can see or understand? That, that bullet point is gold to me because one day I was sitting in my office in Iowa and I was frustrated with someone and I thought I had a bead on the situation. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And this sentence came to me, is it possible that I don't know everything about this situation or person? I remember thinking, no, nope, no. I know everything. But just this idea came, is just by being willing to admit, no, I don't. I noticed it opened a crack for God's mercy to help me be humble and start moving towards mercy. And so there's a lot in there. Again, I don't want to overwhelm you, but there's another sentence that if you go down to that when I go bullet point about two-thirds of the way down to humbly restore and not condemn, two thoughts I have for you on this. One is some big failures I've made in this area over time. I remember, again, as a pastor over the years, a couple, I can think of at least one or two times when I went to somebody and my whole goal was to be uh, their agent of justice in their lives. And I didn't go in the right spirit. I went in a condescending way and I went in an angry spirit rather than a loving, humble spirit. And I didn't go to restore. God says, go to restore. Don't go just to be right. And that leads to that first sentence underneath that. In the Colossians series, we learned this question. Am I more interested in being right or relating rightly? If the goal Jesus has for me is to learn how to relate rightly more than being right, am I more interested in one over the other? Because if I'm more interested in being right, I'll become self-righteous. If I'm more interested in relating rightly, I'll become more like Jesus. And it's a huge difference. Now, there's all kinds of loose ends. Do I have some relationships that are still lacking closure? Oh, yes. There are some people in this community that if they saw me, they would probably want to go the other way. There are people, but I can look back and I can lay my head on the pillow at night and know that I attempted to move towards them humbly. And that's why Romans 12, 18 is so powerful. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Try to live rightly related to people. But we all know in this fallen world, sometimes that still doesn't happen, does it? And I don't understand all that. 
But I do know this, that God's grace can still flow when people are attempting to relate rightly, when people are attempting to stay humble and let God speak to them about what their part is. And so that's what I think has happened at Cherry Hills. Over the years, we've had people walk into this room, back at Outer Park, that room where our church family's house was. And we had people say, you know, I don't know how to explain it, but when I walked into one of your worship services or drove on this property, I started getting tender. I started choking up. I started crying. And I I thought, what's going on? What's happening to me? How do you explain that, friends? I believe that part of the reason is, is, one, because God's gracious to us. But second, I believe that because we've tried to make sure that we deal with each other humbly and try and have right relationships, that his Holy Spirit is able to manifest himself in this place. And we are able to know the presence of God in a way that you cannot know when we're not seeking to be right with each other. And so this is where it's going. And so my dad, when he was mentoring me as a pastor, he told me about a time when he was first pastor. And there was a lady in the church there in Chicago who always had prepared the turkey for this big Thanksgiving lunch that they had. And so the previous assistant pastor had always gone and picked it up at her house so she could get finished getting dressed and then get to the dinner. Well, my dad didn't know that was the original way that the other guy had done it, so when he failed to pick up the turkey, this lady was ticked. So my dad found out that she was hot, and so he went to the senior pastor, and he says, like, like what do I do? He says, I've learned the best thing to do is go right away. Go humbly and seek to try and heal that relationship, if at all possible. So my dad, my dad did. He got in the car. Now, let's just stop for a second. Where was he driving through? Tunnel of chaos. Anybody ever seen your heart rate change when you decide to obey this stuff? Oh, my goodness, it's a moment of truth. He drove over there. He went to this lady and said, look, uh, you're my sister in Christ. I need you. I, I, I've, I've learned that I've um, injured you by not picking up the turkey. And even though I didn't know about that, it hurt you. It was important to you. So I want to ask if you'd forgive me. And he watched her melt. Now, sometimes he went and sometimes people got angrier and they talked for a half hour. But what he could always do when he left that house was he, he could knew, he, I went. I went. I tried to do something, God, like you meant, and I tried to do it in the right spirit. And if I didn't, I'll go back and tell him I didn't get that exactly right. I'm sorry, I, my attitude was a little bit wrong. See, when you have people that are trying to move towards each other like that, it is powerful. So I've had moments like that. You've probably had moments like that. But you know what? When we value loving relationships, what can happen? So this last couple lines in the notes there, would you turn your notes back over? Again, you can always look at that other section in more detail. But here's the way we can spin out of this. Maybe this morning he's been saying to you, look, I want to give you a way to practice on a regular basis being a loving member of this church family. So yes, Lord, I will build a loving relationship this week by maybe it's a, you know, a card, an encouragement note, a phone call, a visit, a handshake, a word, a look, a touch. What might it be? And then the second one is, yes, Lord, you've been speaking to me, and I will repair a broken relationship this week with so-and-so. And I probably should have put in the notes there, I will attempt to repair because you, you and I all know 
that sometimes as far as is possible with us, it doesn't turn out to be possible sometimes on this side of heaven. Some of us have to live, don't we, with sometimes a lack of closure, but God can be gracious to us if we can look back in clean conscience and know that we did what he asked us to do humbly. So we're going to give time to think about that, but here's the picture I want to leave you with. What a vision. What a vision. Jesus pictured a group of people, his church, that by valuing right relationships would be a witness to a broken world. Therefore, Tertullian, one of the first or second century historians, said that when the Roman people saw the early Christians practicing this kind of love and then repairing it when they didn't get it right, here was all they could say. See how they love one another. And what God wants for Springfield is for the Christians in Springfield to love each other in such a way and to love people beyond their walls in such a way they can say, see how they love one another. Jesus, the night before they nailed him to the cross, said to his disciples, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Love, love people, love each other like I've loved you, sacrificially, giving generously, serving hearted. By this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So let's just pause. Let's ask God to help us think about how this applies. So first, is there, has he been just urging you, prompting you to do something kind, something servant-hearted, some kind of, even a cup of cold water to someone in our church family? We're a multi-generational church, so maybe it's someone who's older, or maybe someone who's younger. Is there someone that you've actually kind of looked down on that he wants you to look at with eyes of love and get to know and enjoy the company of? What might it be? And along with that, there's a good chance that maybe you're here and the Lord's been bringing someone's name across the ticker of your mind that he's asking you to move towards and it's scaring you. And you're trying to understand what that would mean. Doesn't mean that he's asking you necessarily to trust that person again. Doesn't mean that he's not saying you need to have healthy boundaries, but maybe he's asking you to extend forgiveness or to seek and apologize and not say if I've offended you but to be able to say I think this is what I did to you and I need you to forgive me if you would so show show us Lord is there someone you want us to move that way towards to repair And finally, we started this message talking about that the only way we can relate to people rightly is if we're first related to God rightly. Maybe there's some of you here that you're not yet a follower of Christ, and God's been showing you that you're not right with him, but that in Jesus Christ, he extends mercy to you and wants to give you a new relationship with him as a gift. 
Would you be willing today to say, God, I've gone my own way. Please forgive me. I want to call on the name of the Lord. Save me. Make me a new person. Come and live in my life. You can do that today if you're ready to do that. So now I just want to pray for you. I want to pray that you'll be able to act on whatever God's shown you and that as each one of us act on what God's showing, can you imagine what would happen if each of us just act on what God shows us today, the multiplied power of that? So, Lord, we're learning. We're learning, still learning. We always will be until heaven. How to be the loving and inviting family of God. Show us how to walk humbly with you and to repair anything we need to repair and to invest in people the way you want us to. In your name we pray, amen. There's always someone down front here to pray. You need that. Bless you.